This is Guns and Butter. Another one of those things where what is hidden comes to light, comes to the surface during a crisis. And what comes to the surface, what's come to the surface here, is that the real relationship between the government and the banks is not that the government is above the banks, but that the banks are above the government. It's very hard, I think, very hard to make an argument that that isn't true. That the real power is not in the government, the real power is in these huge agglomerations of wealth, of capital, who really are the ones who run the show and who, quote-unquote, our representatives are really representing. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Richard Becker. Today's show, The Deepening Economic Crisis. Richard Becker is the Western Regional Coordinator of the International Answer Coalition, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, and a member of its National Steering Committee. Answer has organized numerous mass protests against the war in Iraq between 2002 and 2008. Richard Becker has been a central organizer of West Coast mass mobilizations in San Francisco and Los Angeles, including the International Day of Action, Saturday, March 21st, on the sixth anniversary of the criminal invasion of Iraq. On March 12, 2009, Richard Becker spoke at Sonoma State University for Project Censored on the economic crisis. He explores the real causes of the present depression and more long-term underlying problems. He speaks to the issues of who has benefited from the $8 trillion bailout and what needs to be done to help the growing numbers of people who are harshly affected by the crisis. Richard Becker. I'm going to talk about the economic crisis a little bit. I'm not an economist. Uh, I don't have any degrees, in, but I don't think you have to to really be able to learn about the economy and how it really works. Uh, I am an activist and an organizer with the Answer Coalition, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. It's the coalition that's organized most of the big anti-war demonstrations around the country over the last seven years. And I want to say that I hope that you will come to San Francisco on March 21st. It's the sixth anniversary of the invasion and occupation of Iraq. And no one should take for granted that this war is about to end. Uh, There is really no sign that that that's anywhere in sight. And even what President Obama has said is that the U.S. troops will be out, or he intends, careful use of wording, he intends to have all the U.S. troops out by December of 2011. That's quite a ways from now. When you consider how many people have died, how much is being spent on the war. Right now, $5,000 per second is what the Iraq war costs. And that's about one-sixth of the total military budget. So on March 21st, people all over the country and all over the world will be marching again, and we'll be gathering in San Francisco. The topic of my talk is the economic crisis. The myth of free enterprise is dead. It's over with. It's been killed once and for all by this economic crisis, by what should be called the crash of 2008-2009. I actually wrote an article a couple years ago about the myth of free enterprise, saying it was only free enterprise when those who were the rich were doing good. But even when they were doing good, doing well, making lots of money, they were still getting huge subsidies from us, both through the military budget 
and through other forms of subsidy. It's also very interesting that if you have paid attention to the news over the last 20, 30 years or something like that, you've noticed that on the business channel, and in a certain way all the networks are kind of business channels, but on the business channel in particular, you would hear this constant chorus, get government off our backs. That's what all the business leaders would say and the political, their political representatives and those people in Congress are a lot more their political representatives than they are ours. And they'd all talk about just get rid of regulation, get government off our backs, and we'll be doing great. We'll be able to solve all the problems. Those have become forbidden words. You do not hear them say, get government off our backs anymore. And there's a particular reason for that. The downward spiral of the economy has brought to light, as all crises do, certain realities that remain hidden in calmer and more peaceful times. And none is more important than this, that modern society, whether it is capitalist or it is socialist, cannot function without large-scale government intervention. It cannot function. The society cannot function without large-scale government intervention. So all that talk about the era of big government well, even when that was going on, started by Reagan and continued by Clinton and Bush, both Bushes, uh, that was just for popular consumption. All the time, the military budget was growing, the subsidies to the corporations were growing. The same people who were getting the subsidies and getting the contracts were talking about how get government off our backs. Well, they can't say that anymore. Without the massive intervention of the federal government over the past seven months and longer, the U.S. and, in fact, the world financial banking system would have collapsed, would have utterly collapsed. In the longer term, without the vast propping up of capitalism through the bloated military budget over the past six-plus decades, U.S. capitalism would have gone into a deep crisis long before. It's very interesting to get past the myths about World War II, and what happened afterwards, and understand that in the immediate aftermath of that war, the Truman administration and its financial advisors were extremely concerned that if they did not maintain military spending at a very high level in peacetime for the first time in history, that they would be right back into the depression of the 1930s. So they continued the military spending. The biggest U.S. banks are today, by any accepted definition, actually bankrupt. They are being kept on life support by the government, uh, and particularly by those divisions of the government, the Federal Reserve System and the Department of the Treasury. The Federal Reserve System is often misunderstood. The Federal Reserve System, the central bank of the United States, is really an instrumentality of the banks. It's made up of banking officials uh, who shuttle back and forth the way that the uh, Pentagon and the defense contractors top personnel shuttles back and forth, same thing. And while the government officials from the president to our esteemed senators and representatives, I'm being sarcastic in case you miss it, continually proclaim their concern about us, what they call Main Street, their number one priority, and they have proven it throughout this crisis, is not us, it's a saving the biggest financial and corporate institutions the ones who caused the crisis that we're in. And there can't be any doubt about this. 
from just looking objectively at what's happened. So the remaining question is not whether government intervention is necessary, but who will it benefit? Who will benefit from government intervention? Will it be the tiny minority who own and control the productive wealth of society, the big corporations, the banks, the insurance companies, the oil companies, etc.? Or will it be the people who constitute the vast majority of the population, working people, the middle class, as they like to say, although a very undefined term, but the great majority of the population? Who is it gonna, who's going to benefit? Up until now, since this crisis began, there's no question about what the answer of the government has been. Despite all their prattling on about their concern for Main Street, their concern has been for those at the top. And that's where the money has gone. How much money? Since the economic crisis broke out in full force, we have witnessed, I would argue, the most massive transfer of wealth from the people to the top of society that's ever been seen. The real amount of the bailout according to Wall Street Journal, San Francisco Chronicle, many, is now not $700 billion or $1 billion or $1.2, but it's $8.5 trillion. $8.5 trillion. And where has it gone? It's been handed over to the biggest banks, to the insurance companies, investors, and other corporations, most of it with no strings attached, which is really quite amazing. Has anybody here ever gotten a government grant? Ever work in a community center where you get a government grant? I, I worked in one, and I used to think, why do they bother getting money from the United Way? This was a community center in the south of Market in San Francisco, and they got $90,000, and I think, from the United Way annually. And I think that I had computed that they spent about $70,000 doing the paperwork, the labor for the paperwork, to justify the grant. Not for the banks. Nothing. No strings attached. This is... I mean, it's just a, a mind-boggling thing to consider. And to repeat, without this injection of money, the banking finance system would have collapsed, completely collapsed. So why has the government bailed out the very same financiers and institutions that triggered the crisis that has now taken the jobs and the homes of millions of people, taken the health care of millions of people, put millions of people into crisis. And it's not just, you know, the figures, the statistics are hollow because the number one predictor of domestic violence in a household is loss of job. More than alcohol, drugs, anything else, number one is loss of jobs. Of course, all the other things follow, but it's a traumatic thing for people. Losing your home is a trauma for a family, and often families dissolve, break up, are so traumatized by it that you know, they, 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 they come to an end as families. But the question has to be asked, why have they done this? Why have they turned over this money? And it's not just the banks, it's also the insurance companies. Maybe you've heard that the American International Group, AIG, the world's biggest insurance company, has now received four bailouts over the last six months. So four into six months, what is that? They're getting a bailout like every six weeks. The total is now $180 billion that's been given to them. And there's no end in sight. Even the people who are giving them the money say, well, we don't mean that this is they've made it through the crisis. They'll probably need more. Why? Why are they getting it? 
Uh, and this is an insurance company. Now, insurance companies used to have this reputation that they were conservative, staid institutions. You know, they insured risk, and they, you know, were very cautious and careful about their money. But AIG has engaged, has collected the premiums from people, and used that money to engage in the wildest and riskiest speculation that anyone could imagine, and even things that we can't imagine. And even the, many of the commentators say themselves, the so-called experts, we don't really know what they've done with all the money. The derivatives, the mortgage-backed securities, the derivatives in particular, which is kind of, you know, this, I don't understand it fully, but this kind of crazy betting on things. Will this go up? Will the Swedish currency go up over the next six months or will it go down? Uh, we're going to insure your insurance. We'll insure your bond and sell it back to you. I mean, all this stuff that's just wild, wild stuff that's gone on. Um, and I should also say, wild stuff that meets no needs of people. You cannot live inside a credit default swap. You can't eat mortgage-backed securities. You can't ride around in derivatives. It's all stuff that has no relationship to human need, but it has a great relationship to the need of capital to find ways to enhance itself. What it really is, what they've really been doing, engaging in, what AIG's been engaging in, is the wildest form of gambling in the world's biggest casino. That's what they've been doing. That's what a lot of this. And it's a zero-sum game. For everyone who wins, somebody else loses, and it must be an equal amount. It all comes out to nothing. It's not like actual production of things that people need. And so they did this. They made lots of money for a while. Uh, they attracted a lot of investors. And then the house of cards that they had built collapsed. You're listening to the Western Regional Coordinator of the International Answer Coalition, Richard Becker. Today's show, The Deepening Economic Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, the crisis is deepening by the day with the worst of it certainly yet to come. The official unemployment rate in February was eight, rose to 8.1%. Um, the real unemployment rate is much higher. That does not really adequately describe it. You only get counted if you're collecting benefits or you're registered as continuing to look for work. Many, many people, of course, aren't doing either one of those things anymore because they've been out of work a long time. The unemployment rate for African Americans is officially 13.4%. For Latinos, 10.9%. For white workers, 7.3%. For young workers, more than 21%. For young African-American workers, more than 50%. Nearly 700,000 jobs were eliminated in the month of February alone. In the last four months, the total job losses are 2.6 million, jobs that have been cut. That's an average of 650,000 jobs per month. And the economy, according to the mainstream system economists is that it must add 150,000 to 200,000 jobs per month in order to keep up with population increase, meaning that the real job deficit just in the last four months is 3 million. Over the last year, they say it's 4.4 million. That's the number of jobs eliminated. But if you add in that other 150,000 to 200,000 a month, you have to add on another couple million, a job deficit. Um, And there's suffering that's 
going on because of this that I said a little bit about, and it's not only here, but it's around the world. In the last quarter of 2008, the gross domestic product, the GDP, declined by an astounding 6.2%, the biggest decline in a single quarter since 1982. And the GDP also must increase at about a rate of 2.5% a year in order to keep up with population growth. The Dow Jones Index has had a, a big surge the last couple of days, uh, but it's still down about 50% from its high of October 2007. And part of the reason for the surge, I believe, is that many of the stocks are so unbelievably cheap. I don't know if any of you saw the YouTube that somebody did. It was about this guy's taking, like, change out of his pocket, and he says, I got a dollar. I'm trying to figure out what's a better investment, a share of Citigroup or something off the McDonald's dollar menu. Because that's true. That was that's the General Motors a dollar thirty-five last week. That's share. It's as low as it was last time. It was that low as nineteen thirty-three, and in nineteen thirty-three, uh, you know, dollars were probably worth about ten times what dollars are today. So unbelievable fall in these in these. And of course, it's not just the rich shareholders who are suffering from this, but millions, tens of millions of people are. People are afraid to open their 401k reports when they come because they're a disaster. Uh, so people's pension funds, uh, not only losing jobs, but losing future benefits. Um, and as I said, the crisis is a worldwide one. The governments of both Iceland and Latvia, two relatively small countries, but probably a sign of things to come, have collapsed due to the economy. Uh, in recent weeks, there's been street fighting in Greece, France, Cameroons, and Africa, and other countries due to the economic crisis. 2009 is predicted by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, to be the first year since the Great Depression when the world GDP actually declines. Now, not everyone is suffering, of course. The oil giant ExxonMobil made $45.6 billion in profits last year, the biggest profits of any corporation in human history. But it's interesting that you have to look at those profits in the context that American International Group in the last quarter of last year lost $61 billion, the biggest loss by far any corporation ever took. So this downward spiral, combined with the biggest giveaway to the rich in, in history, uh, is the situation that, that we, we see ourselves in. Uh, the bailout, as I said, $8 trillion. That's an eight, and then you put 12 zeros after it. It's an unimaginable amount of money, unimaginable. Um, what's really uh, uh, something is that this was uh, a bipartisan giveaway to the banks from the beginning of the first bailout bill, and there was a national rebellion against the bailout back in September. It was actually defeated. It's the first time I've ever seen a vote in the House of Representatives. I, mean, I watched it on, on C-SPAN where you didn't know how it was going to come out ahead of time, and it was defeated, but then there was a huge offensive mainly spearheaded by the Democrats, by uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. I'm not attacking them because I'm a Republican. I promise you I'm not a Republican. Uh, but the Republicans joined in. But the Democrats really spearheaded it, and they all voted for it, including the present President Obama. And uh, what's very interesting about this is not so much that they would vote for it, but the way it went through and what's in the bill, what was in that bill, and all of the subsequent bailout money, and what isn't there. 
So on December 23rd, the San Jose Mercury News had an article, and there were a lot of articles around that time because it was a big story on the same subject. And the headline was, Banks Mum on Bailout Spending. Banks Mum. And, and, and the press had called up all these bankers and you know, got their PR people from J.P. Morgan Chase and Citibank and Wells Fargo and Bank of America and said to them, so could you tell us what you've done with the money you received for the bailout? They had each re- all those banks had each received about $25 billion by then. Then they got more. And all of them said, well, we, we choose not to disclose that to you. That's nice, isn't it? That's our money. But they choose not to disclose that to us. And what's perhaps more amazing than the arrogance, the supreme arrogance of the bankers, after all, they are bankers, uh, known for arrogance, uh, is what Congress did. And when the first bailout was proposed, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Paulson uh, who came straight to the job as Secretary of the Treasury from being the CEO of Goldman Sachs, one of the biggest, the biggest investment bankers. And I, I don't, again, I don't want to just focus on the Republicans because uh, Clinton's Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Rubin, also came right to the job from being CEO of Goldman Sachs. That's that thing going on at the top between the financial interests and the government uh, agencies that are supposedly regulate them, haha, that they just go back and forth. So Paulson came to them. He went to the so-called representatives of the people, and he said, whispered in their ear, and he said, if you don't give me this money, the whole world is going to collapse. The sky is going to fall. And so they did it. And they did it with record speed. Uh, And they did it in spite of this popular rebellion. I mean, the rebellion against it, the opposition was so big. Like in Feinstein's office, Feinstein actually let out that she had received something like 10,000 emails in two days against it and not one in favor of the bailout. And that was the pattern all over the place. Um, So they had a a whip into line the other members of Congress to get it passed. But to not have to, to not put into that legislation any reporting requirements. I mean, imagine this. They're giving away more money than has ever been given away in history, and it didn't occur to them that maybe they should say, please get back to us about how you use the money, even if they wanted to grovel as they usually do. But for anybody else, it would be, we give you this money, you must report to us how the money has been expended. And not only that, you have to show us the receipts, attached original receipts. It's really, really, I mean, it's really an amazing thing that's happened. And it shows something, though. It's another one of those things where what is hidden comes to light, comes to the surface during a crisis. And what comes to the surface, what's come to the surface here, is that the real relationship between the government and the banks is not that the government is above the banks, but that the banks are above the government. It's very hard, I think, very hard to make an argument that that isn't true. That the real power is not in the government. The real power is in these huge agglomerations of wealth, of capital, who really are the ones who run the show and who, quote-unquote, our representatives are really representing. And so this myth, I think that another of the myths along this line that's been 
dealt a death blow is that we live in a government of, by, and for the people. And that's the idea that is drilled into our minds from the time that we first begin to learn things. Through school, through the media, through the politicians, through their speeches, through every imaginable way, we're told we live in a democracy. It's a government of, by, and for the people. But the reality is, and I think that's a very important thing that the crisis has shown, is that that is not true. That the people who pretend to be our representatives are really representing somebody else. Well, the trillion dollars, as I said, is an unimaginable amount of money. So to try to make it a little bit more imaginable, let's talk a little bit about what one trillion dollars could buy. With a trillion dollars, you could create for a year 20 million jobs at $50,000 a year. So one trillion, one out of the 8.5 could have ended the unemployment crisis. And what could the people who are hired do? Would it be just sitting around and collecting money? There's a lot of things that need to be done. There's a lot of things that society needs. It is agreed that the infrastructure of the country, large, large swaths of the infrastructure, urgently need repair. Thousands of bridges. You know that bridge that collapsed in, in Minnesota? There are thousands of bridges that are classified the same as that bridge that those bridges need to be repaired. Roads need to be repaired. Sewage systems need to be repaired. Water systems need to be repaired. Power systems need to be regenerated and new ones built. Healthcare, the whole healthcare system needs to be changed. The healthcare system here is archaic. It's for profit and for profit only. It's not really even right to call it a system because it isn't a system. It's a business. And what could be done though? You know. There could be neighborhood health care clinics built. Clinics could be built in every neighborhood and staffed. You know, this is, sounds like a, a, you know, a, an unusual idea, except this exists in many countries, many countries much poorer than the United States. Cuba, for instance, has a very interesting health care system. Every neighborhood has a, a small neighborhood clinic with a doctor and a nurse and health outreach workers. And those doctors, if you don't go to the doctor for a long period of time, or if the doctors know that you, have a, that you have some kind of condition, you don't go, they go to you. They go knock on your door. I mean, because of the kind of healthcare system and the attention to healthcare that Cuba has, it has now a lower infant mortality rate than the United States of America, a far, far richer country. And they, they continue to bring it down. Why couldn't we have that? Imagine having that and funding it. That was available for people whether or not they could pay because healthcare should really be a right of people. Uh, and the, the healthcare is what is also, in addition to housing, which I want to talk a, a little bit about in a second, but in addition to housing, it's the, it's the immense burden and cost of healthcare in order to support a system that is based not just on profit but on the maximization of profit that is also driving the crisis for so many millions and millions of people now. You know, these all come together. People, half of the bankruptcies in the United States last year were uh, healthcare related. People got, got sick, they got in a situation, people are desperate, they'll do anything, uh, particularly if it's a life-threatening situation for them or a member of their family, and they go into debt so deeply that they end up in bankruptcy. The healthcare system is so out of whack. So let's take the first trillion dollars, 20 million jobs at $50,000 a year. A second trillion dollars could create a health care system, a national health care system, and could also do what is 
a practice also in many other countries, which is if you go to college, you don't have to pay. You know, you get a scholarship. And in many countries, you get room and board as well as tuition paid for and books. And even in some countries, capitalist countries too, you get a stipend to live on while you go to college. So many students now, and I think this is particularly true, but not exclusively, but in the community colleges, are just kind of like running around like crazy. You know, they're working, they're working two jobs, they're going to school, they can't keep up. Sometimes they have families, they have family responsibilities. Forty years ago in the United States, most of the state universities, even the most prestigious ones, didn't charge tuition. I mean, what's happened? Did the United States become poorer? Well, maybe in the last year it's become a little bit poorer, but over the last 40 years did the country get poorer? No, there was a decision about where resources were going to go. So you could do that. And also, you know, refurbishing the public schools, raising the pay of teachers, maybe making it possible so in the urban schools the teachers didn't have to buy school supplies out of their own pocket, which is the case in many, many schools today. If teachers want to have school supplies, they have to buy them. And there could be funding for other things. But these are things that even from a capitalist economic standpoint, which I'm not an advocate of, but even from that standpoint, you could say that would be the best way to get the country out of the recession depression that it's going into because those people would spend the money they get paid, the money that they receive, and that would stimulate the production of more goods and services that would put more people back to work. Instead... What's been done with the money is it's gone to the banks and to the insurance companies, and they won't tell you what's been done with it, but nothing's been done with it in relation to providing unemployment or really rejuvenating the economy. What they're doing with the money, because they were really bankrupt, is they're paying off the others in their little fraternity at the top. That's where the money is going. That's where the money has gone. That's why they don't want to talk about where the money has gone. You're listening to the Western Regional Coordinator of the International Answer Coalition, Richard Becker. Today's show, The Deepening Economic Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The underlying cause of the crisis I want to talk a little bit about. It's not actually this wild speculation. The wild speculation, there's always wild speculation. Ever since there's been capitalism, there's been wild speculation. There's a very interesting story about you know, the first capitalist country was the Netherlands back in the, in the 1600s. And there was tulip speculation that went so out of control that at one point a single tulip was worth a million dollars. And then that, of course, collapsed too. So speculation has been there. There's something more basic that's going on. And it is the crisis of overproduction, the underlying crisis of overproduction. And overproduction, capitalist overproduction, has a very specific meaning that needs to be, it's, it's important to, to know. And it does not mean that too much is produced in relation to what people need. It means that too much has been produced in relation to what can be sold in the marketplace at a profit. And it is the basic underlying cause of the boom and bust cycle, the bust in the boom and bust cycle, that has characterized capitalism from its beginning. So over the last 200 years, there's been a boom and bust cycle, on average, probably every seven years. Sometimes it's been as long as 10 years. Sometimes it's been as short as two years or three years, this cycle. And uh, so 
and overproduction is the basic cause. If you said to our ancestors, and even to people in many parts of the world today, uh, to people who lived in earlier forms of society, we have crisis. Our society is in crisis because we produce too much. They would think you were crazy. The cause of crises in all earlier societies has not been too much. It's been too little. It's been scarcity. And most, uh, most all, uh, scarcity of food, which has caused crises. But capitalism is a different system. Uh, under capitalism, all of what existed before, all f earlier forms disappear eventually. In a developed capitalist society, like the one that we live in and much of the world lives in today, very few people produce goods or services for themselves or for the unit that they live in or for anyone that they know. This wasn't true before, whether it was feudal society or slave-based societies of, of ancient times or pre-class society. People produced and consumed what they produced. And within, maybe not individually, but within their unit. Everybody knew where it was coming from and where it went. A little bit that was left over went to the marketplace uh, beginning long ago, but it was always a very tiny percentage. Now, production of goods and services is all for someone we don't know. It's for, it goes to a market, and the market is kind of an unknown thing. Will the market be sufficient next year to absorb all of what we have produced, or should we be producing more in order to garner a larger share of the market? And of course, in the minds of the people who own of the capitalists, they are always thinking that that's what they would like to do, capture more of the marketplace, which is one of the main things that drives overproduction as an inherent characteristic, an inherent element of the capitalist system. And they're competing with each other. They're all competing with each other to maximize profit. Not just to make a profit, to make the maximum profit. And why is that? What drives them to have to seek the maximum profit? It's actually the domination of the banks because they're all seeking the same investments. They're all seeking investment capital. Send your investment capital our way. Lend us the money so that we can expand our production, buy more other companies, do whatever we're going to do. But they're in competition with each other, and the banks, who are the bankers who are making the decisions, are calculating where will the highest rate of return come from, and that's where our, we will want to place our money. And so if you want to get new technology, you want, to, you want to merge with other corporations, you want to do all these things that, that big capital wants to do, you have to maximize profit. Uh, and uh, they're not just in competition with each other in different branches. Like It's not just oil company against oil company, steelmaker against steelmaker. They're all in competition with each other to make the maximum profit. And 50 years ago, the head of U.S. Steel, when it was the biggest corporation, I think, along with General Motors, the biggest industrial corporation, said, the business of U.S. Steel is not making steel. The business of U.S. Steel is making profit. And he was exactly right. This competition leads to overproduction. And now we're seeing it again. Before the crisis, before all this wild speculation, and one of the things that drove it is that there was also overproduction of capital itself. Too much capital. How could there be too much capital? Because capital isn't money. That's not, it's not just money. It can be money. Like this piece of paper here is not capital right now. I do not plan to buy a share 
of a productive wealth corporation. I'll just spend it. If I bought, no, my 10 shares of Citibank with it, it would then become capital. And capital must seek to enhance its value. So if there's overproduction like there is, and there has been for a while, it's been disguised in a number of ways, uh, and now we see it. Now we see in full force. Capital must find other means by which to enhance its value. And that's where we got these brilliant new ideas like derivatives, mortgage-backed securities, credit default swaps, et cetera, et cetera, the gambling approach to it. And as long as the market and everything was moving up, the people at the top were like, yeah, this is great. We're making money. And they also were inculcated with what Alan Greenspan, a libertarian economist who used to be the head of the uh, Federal Reserve, said very famously a few years ago when they asked him about the stock market going up so much, he said, I think there's a little irrational exuberance. Well, there's actually, in the boom phase of capitalist cycle, there's always irrational exuberance. There's always this idea, and they were saying it until a year ago, we're not going to go into crisis again. This is different. It's not going to be like before. It's not going to be like the last 200 years. There's not going to be a boom and bust cycle. It's all going to be boom from now on. They were really saying this, but they're not saying it anymore. So the crisis of overproduction, and, and let me just try to give an example. Anybody ever hear of something called the coal miner's riddle or the coal miner's enigma? A little girl is in their house, and this is a, a, it's an old story, so it's a time when many people still heated their houses with coal. And the girl says to her father, Daddy, why is it so cold in our house? And he says, because we've run out of coal. The girl says, why have we run out of coal? And the father says, we don't have any money to buy more coal. Why don't we have any money? Because I lost my job in the coal mine. Why did you lose your job in the coal mine? Because there's too much coal. Right? There's too much coal. There's too much coal, so we don't have any coal. There's too much coal, so we don't have coal to heat our house. This is exactly, in fact, not something from 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It's exactly what's going on right now. In the last quarter of 2008, according to a February 2009 report by the Census Bureau, there were 18,900,000 empty housing units in the United States. 18,900,000. And it's gone up from 17.4 million a year earlier because of what's been happening. But just as in the example of the coal miners' riddle, the fact that there are more houses on the market means that more people will become homeless. And why is that? Because the surplus of housing in relation to the market is driving down the price of houses, right? In many places, they've gone down 50% or more. In the boom period of the early 2000s, when the housing bubble was really created, this housing boom, millions of people were sold homes at very low initial mortgage payment rates. And uh, I, when I spoke about this three days ago at Sierra College in Rockland, someone argued that, well, it's the responsibility of those people who took those loans. And then the teacher said, well, because I was an adjunct professor and not making any money, another obscenity, you know, that there's so many people who have to be, uh, you know. She said, I took a job as a mortgage broker for two years. And she said, they told us, and it was in the height of this, and she said, they, came, they told us all, get the people to take the subprime loans. Even if they can take 
even if they can do the standard loan, get them to take the subprime loan if you can, or get them to, get, to have an adjustable rate mortgage. And what does that mean? Does everybody know what that is, what the subprime really means? It means you get a loan, and the interest payment for the first two or three years is very low. So your house payment is very, very low, and then it balloons. Or an adjustable rate, same thing. Adjustable rate mortgage. So millions of people were sold these, and many of them were sold to people who didn't want to take them. And how were they sold to them? What was the argument? And I'm not saying this is true about all mortgage brokers, because as this teacher said, said, I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't take selling these to people. And many of the people were coming in, they never owned a home before. No one in their family ever owned a home before. When they saw somebody who seemed like a person of authority, confidently telling them, it's going to be okay, just take my word for it, it'll all be fine, they went for it. People do. That's what happens. And so the subprime loans, they were told, the people who were buying them were said, this is the way they were sold. They said, okay, this is how it'll go. You'll be paying a very low rate for a while. Then it's going to go up. But by the time it goes up in three years, your house will probably be worth 30% more than it is now because just look at how the price of houses has been going up over the last five years. And it's going to just keep going up. And you'll be able to refinance. In other words, you'll be able to get a loan that covers the difference between uh, what your house was originally valued at and what your house is valued at now. And you'll be able to do this. And you'll probably also be able to buy yourself a new car. It'll be great for you. This is really a great deal. Of course, what was really a great deal for was, first and foremost, the banks and, and the big mortgage companies like Countrywide Finance. And the, and the brokers who could sell these got bonuses for selling them. You got a bonus if you could sell it. But it was a systematic thing that was done. And, of course, what happened was what always happens. The boom ended. It began to be clear in 2006 that the rising uh, price of houses was ending and that then they started to go down and go down and down and down. And at the same time that that happened, the ballooning of the mortgage payments happened for people. The mortgage rates were adjusted. So people were paying 50% or 75% or 100% more than they'd been paying before for their mortgage payments, and they couldn't do it. And they began to be foreclosed, and that foreclosure crisis is still very deep. There's 8 million uh, homeowners who are said to be underwater. That is, the value of their mortgage is greater than the value of their house now and are in danger of being foreclosed themselves. And as more houses go on the market, uh, the price continues to fall. But not only does the price continue to fall, the construction workers continue to be laid off. And many of the construction workers, and this has got to be like a kind of very bitter irony if, it's, if it happens to you, like out in Tracy, people know where Tracy is, out at about 80 miles outside San Francisco, where a lot of people bought houses at the height of the boom because at least you could get something that was, wasn't really reasonable. It was like $400,000 for a family-sized house, whereas in San Francisco by then there were a million. And a lot of the people who got those houses were construction workers, and a lot of them were Latino construction workers, in fact, uh, and who were making good money in the housing boom and bought the houses. And then they, this crisis started, and then they began being laid off. And in December of this year, housing starts in the United States was 400,000. Two years earlier, it was 2 million, meaning that there's only employment left 
for 20% of the hundreds of thousands or millions of workers who work in housing construction, a huge part of the economy. So because there's too many houses, more people become homeless. It's the most absurd thing, really. Uh, I think from, from, the, from anyone's point of view, any human point of view, unless you happen to be one of the people at the top who's made the millions and billions, it shows that the system is actually an absurd system. Why should you have a system where if there's too much food, more people go hungry, or too many houses, more people become homeless? You're listening to the Western Regional Coordinator of the International Answer Coalition, Richard Becker. Today's show, The Deepening Economic Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. This is not apparent to most people yet, but I think it's possible that it could become apparent to a lot of people. And this could cause something to really change in the United States. The reason that it's not apparent is because the giant propaganda machine that is the media kind of pounds into our head all the time, this is the best system, this is the best system, this is the best system, this is the best system. I mean, we hear it over and over and over and over again. Uh, And that, you know, if they ever mention the the name Karl Marx, well, maybe he meant well is the most, but everything he said was completely wrong, and anybody who tried socialism, was it's a complete disaster. But in fact... The crash of 2008-2009 has reaffirmed Marx's analysis. He's the first person who ever deconstructed, you could say, a system. He deconstructed the capitalist system, went right down to the, the basic unit of the commodity, how capitalism works, and pointed out that this is an inherent built-in part of capitalism, and it can't be stopped as long as the capitalist system exists. We're living in the earliest stages of what appears to be, and I I don't think there's any question really anymore, the most severe economic crisis uh, since the 1930s. In the 1930s depression, there's a lot of reference to it, very little explanation about it. It really lasted for uh, 11 years. Uh, It came out of the the depression a little bit and starting around 1935, but by 1937 it went back down again, and it only really emerged from the depression with the turn toward a massive wartime production for World War II, which was the most, the biggest war uh, ever. And when, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars were spent uh, and there was full employment because there was full employment to produce planes and tanks and ships and and all of that. And uh, that's why uh, what happened afterwards was the creation of what has really been a permanent war economy. And uh, as I said, we, we shouldn't forget that. Since the end of World War II, if you measured U.S. military spending in current dollars, I don't have the exact figure. I'm trying to get it in a more exact form. But it's somewhere between 32 and $35 trillion that's been spent. 32 to $35 trillion. I mean, talk about unimaginable amounts of money. But one thing you can say about it is that, uh, first of all, it's, it takes out the, the thing that's so great for the corporations about or the military-industrial complex, which is tons of thousands of companies, and the banks are all tied into those companies, too, is that it removes the mystery of the market. You know, you don't have to think about who's going to buy our B-1 bomber. There's only one customer. That's the U.S. government. In fact, the U.S. government does not allow a lot of that military, those military goods to be sold to other countries. Many of them they do allow to, and the United States 
is by far the number one arms exporter in the world, far and away. And this year, the U.S. military budget, although I don't really see any country threatening the United States, is anybody, Canada, Mexico, the Russians are coming, I don't think so. The U.S. military budget this year will be larger than the military budgets of all other 192 countries in the world put together. And so this is continuing onwards. This astounding level of military spending, amazing level of it, has fended off the crisis from going back to the 1930s-style depression until now. But it's like a stimulant. It's like an artificial way of keeping the economy going. And I think it's a pharmacological truth that stimulants used for too long turn into their opposite. And uh, that may be uh, also what we're witnessing. So there can be a convergence of a crisis of overproduction, a very severe crisis of overproduction. There's overproduction, by the way, just to say one more thing about that. There's overproduction all over the place. I mean, go up here, you go up to, like, the Central Valley in November and December where they're selling kiwi fruit along the road, like, 35 for a dollar, and burning huge quantities of pears and other fruits and vegetables because they don't want them to go, and not just here, but all over. Too much food. So a third of the population of the world doesn't have enough to eat. But vast, hundreds of thousands or millions of tons of food are destroyed every year in order that it doesn't bring down the price in the marketplace. So that's, that's, that's happening. And also, it just may be that this stimulative effect of military spending, which really produces no reflected goods inside the, the economy, you know, it could be, could be wearing out. So, and, and also I should say about the military spending, there's no proposal for cutting this really right now. There's no proposal with the new administration for any reduction. In fact, the Obama's first budget calls for a 4% increase next year and for increasing the size of the military by 100,000. For what? What's that for? Why are there 800 U.S. military bases in over 100 countries around the world? I mean, are they there protecting democracy in Saudi Arabia? which has never had an election in the history of the country? You know, uh, I don't think so. Uh, why are they all over the Gulf region? Why are they all over Turkey? Why is there a giant fleet that sits off the coast of China? What's it doing there? Is China about to attack the United States? The reality is that this deployment isn't for freedom, as it said, except for the freedom of, uh, again, the freedom of U.S. corporations to be safe everywhere in the world. It's, it's really, a, a, I think, a disastrous situation that's unfolding. We believe that there should be a program put forward that says that no one should be kicked out of their house, that there shouldn't be any evictions, um, that there shouldn't be any utility shutoffs for people, that everyone should have a job or a living income, that people, and people should have health care, that there should be free education through college, that the bankers who are responsible for triggering this crisis should be going on trial and then be going to jail. There's a Federal Reserve Code section, I don't have it with me, that says that anyone who in selling property knowingly inflates the value of a property or a mortgage is subject to up to 30 years imprisonment and up to a $1 million fine. Do we think any of that kind of stuff might have gone on in the last few years? Do we see any federal prosecutors now, you know, hunting down the bankers and brokers who have done this. Um, 
But what's really kind of the bottom line is this, is that how will this change? How can it change? I don't want to just present a picture of gloom and doom, as grim as it all is. It can change. And what can bring about the change? There's only really one force on earth that can do that, and that's the people. It's not going to come from the White House. It's not going to come from Congress. I think they've proven themselves behind a shadow of a doubt. They'll change their tune when there's a movement of people that's powerful enough to make them change their tune. For those of us who have been around for a while and seen a number of movements and remembered when the White House and much of Congress ridiculed the anti-apartheid movement until they were forced by a movement in the 1980s to change their position and announce that they were divesting or... And then, of course, they're like, we did it, Ronald Reagan and the congressional leaders. Of course, they didn't do it. Franklin Roosevelt, more mythology of the Great Depression. It wasn't Franklin Roosevelt who woke up one day after coming from a family of blue bloods who go back to before the British were the colonizers, to the Dutch colonizers, who woke up one day and said, gee, working people aren't getting their fair shake, so we should better give them unemployment and Social Security and uh, workers' comp and the right to have a union and food stamps. You know, there was no Social Security until 1935. That didn't exist. Unemployment didn't exist. The right to have a union didn't really exist. There were some, but they were quasi-legal. Why, why did that happen? It was because after years of a movement that built up in the 1930s, the people at the top realized that they better make some concessions to the people. Because if they didn't, they might lose the whole thing that there might be a revolution in the United States. Uh, when, when Roosevelt said he was going to do this, some of his fellow uh, capitalists said, that's terrible. Uh, and, and a lot of people you know, were against Roosevelt because of this. And Roosevelt said, I'm like the doctor, and you're like the cancer patient. And you're not going to like the treatment, but it's going to save you. And that's what really happened in the 1930s. It wouldn't have changed without the people. There would be to this day a system of legal apartheid segregation in the United States, except for the intervention of the people. Beginning in 1955 and uh, the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, that movement, it was nine years until the Civil Rights Act was signed. And who was it signed by? It was signed by Lyndon Baines Johnson, a South Texas politician, who probably didn't think he was going to go down in history for that a few years earlier. Why did he sign it? Why did Richard Nixon sign the most far-reaching affirmative action federal legislation, not someone who was you know, especially sympathetic to the cause of oppressed people, to put it mildly, a vicious racist and anti-Semite himself, because of the movement of the people that, that existed at the time. It goes for every progressive change that's happened from the end of slavery to women's rights to vote up to the present time. It's the movement of the people that brings about change. That's what the Answer Coalition is about. So when we're marching, and we have many things that we're involved in, but when we're marching on March 21st, we're going to be marching under two banners. One says, occupation is a crime, Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine. Occupation is a crime anywhere. And secondly, fund people's needs, not war and bank bailouts. So I hope that you'll join us. Thanks. listening to Richard Becker. Today's show has been The Deepening Economic Crisis, 
Richard Becker is the Western Regional Coordinator of the International Answer Coalition, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, and a member of its National Steering Committee. Richard Becker has been a central organizer of West Coast mass mobilizations in San Francisco and Los Angeles, including the International Day of Action, Saturday, March 21st, on the sixth anniversary of the criminal invasion of Iraq. Richard Becker was a contributing author of NATO in the Balkans and traveled to the former Yugoslavia on a fact-finding mission following the 1999 NATO war. He, along with Ramsey Clark, comprised the first U.S. delegation to investigate the U.S. bombing of the Al-Shifa pharmaceutical plant in Sudan and produced the video, Eyewitness Sudan. Visit the Answer Coalition's San Francisco website at www.actionsf.org. That's actionsf.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace. Give thanks. Life and release. You dig me? 